Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Every day we're a little closer to home than we were before. We enter into Daniel chapter 10 this morning. Will you stand with me for a reading of those verses? I'll begin reading at Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision, down to verse 5. I lifted up my eyes, Daniel says, and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist, and his body was like beryl, and his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Thank you for your respect for the word. You may be seated. Let's take a look at it together, and particularly as we look at that first verse. Um, I notice a little phrase in that first verse, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's a pagan king, not a, not a believing king, um, a word was revealed to Daniel, and his name is also, Daniel's name is also Belteshazzar. And here's what I want you to see. It's this little phrase, it was a great conflict. It was a great conflict. One writer has said of that, that this great conflict could refer to a great earthly war or wars that we see daily in the news now, right? That would occur in the future or could even describe spiritual warfare between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Both interpretations would suit the context well, remember, because there's a lot of wars going on in this part of the book of Daniel. But we also know that there seems to be heavenly wars going on where Gabriel, the archangel, says to Daniel, listen, I was delayed in coming to you because I needed help from Michael to free me up to come to you. Um, We see that both interpretations would suit the context well. All the conflicts recorded in these last chapters involve conflicts between nations or angels. Now, just for a moment, let that thought settle in. We see the conflicts of the nations. And you may experience personal conflict, too, but we see huge conflicts in the nations, great conflicts, in our present world. What I want to remind you of is there's also conflicts happening behind the scenes, okay? Spiritually speaking, the Bible talks of angelic beings, princes, and powers of the air. That element is going on as well. We just don't see it. Now, there's three lessons I want to teach you this morning about when the world is in conflict, and here they are. So we're going to take that little phrase, in great conflicts, and carry it through these three lessons. In great conflicts, God is actively working. In great conflicts, God is actively working. Now, if you look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, I got to give you a little bit of a brief a two-minute history lesson here. In great conflicts, God is actively working. That passage starts out with a discussion about King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is the pagan king that is listed more than any other king throughout the Bible. But before we get there, just know this. 
that Daniel was 70 years earlier, was taken captive from his city of Jerusalem by a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You may remember, we talked about this probably several months ago now, but here is the artist's rendering of the Israelites leaving their city, Jerusalem, as Nebuchadnezzar destroys it. You can almost get the feel that the Israelites would become refugees. We've seen images like that in the news, haven't we, of Ukrainians leaving and crossing over borders, of, of uh, Polish moms leaving baby carriages for them when they would get off the train so that they'd have something for their children when they get off the tra train crossing over the border. Y you can get the feel that these people are leaving their hometown. That's what's happening under King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is one of those groups that gets transported and carried away over to Babylon. Now, you'll notice that's the order. They go north, um, clear up into Aram, and then they come down. And you say, well, that seems like a really long distance to travel. Listen, there were no planes. There were no automobiles. There were no trains. You had to follow where the rivers were or else you weren't going to get there. This is a 600-mile journey, and Daniel, as a young boy, is taken and carried clear away. Now, with that in mind, notice how Daniel 10 says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. But if you take a look at the book of Ezra, you're going to find Cyrus's name show up again. And here's what we read in the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here's what he said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. By the way, this is what Jeremiah prophesied 200 years earlier, okay? So just get this. Cyrus finds his name written in an Old Testament scripture and suddenly says, wait a minute, this God recorded my name 200 years before I was ever born. And now, he says, he has given to me all these kingdoms and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Just stop. Great conflicts going on. Here are all of these Jewish people clear over in Babylon. And now all of a sudden, Cyrus is saying, go home and we're giving you money so that you can rebuild your temple. Go home, rebuild your city. God is actively working even in the midst of the great conflict. Are you with me there? We don't see it until we look back at it. And then we say, oh, look at that. Cyrus told them they could. But in real time, these people were saying, hey, we're all going home. And just let me show you how many went home. If you read a little later in the book of Ezra, this is what you discover. The whole assembly together was 42,360 people, besides their male and female servants, of whom were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. I just want you to see how detailed God is in making arrangements. You say, well, Phil, I'm not sure if I believe all that stuff in the Bible. Check this out. Okay. If you go to the British Museum, you will find a little scroll there, a stone scroll that has been dated back to the time of Cyrus that archaeologists discovered. And in that, Cyrus speaks of sending various nations that had all been gathered in Babylon, because that's how the Babylonian king did it. When he took over, he speaks of sending them back to rebuild their temples. Completely different from, uh, completely in concurrence with what the scripture says, but not the scripture. 
The archaeologists kind of found this thing. They dusted it off. They interpreted it. They read it. And this is what they found. All of this is historical. This is a reminder that God was actively working through a pagan king while everybody was in the midst of a great conflict. First lesson, in all great conflicts, God is actively working. Just a point of application. Maybe you're experiencing your greatest conflict in your life right now. Okay? Just want to remind you, God's actively working. You say, Phil, you don't understand. My heart beats faster. My palms get sweaty. I get nervous. I'm anxious. This is, any, this is way beyond anything I'd ever anticipated. I just want to remind you, God is actively working. Right? Here's the second idea. In all great conflicts, prayer should be our first response. In all great conflicts, prayer should be our first response. We tend not to pray first. We tend to worry first, grow anxious first, gossip first, talk to other people, fix it first. But I want you to see that when Daniel comes off of whatever this great conflict is in verse 1, we find immediately verse 2 says this. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. Let's stop there for a second. I just want you to see that Daniel's first response was to pray and fast. In fact, he's engaged in a period of praying and fasting for three weeks. Now, for a moment, you and I experience great conflicts, and let's say we actually do pray. Most of us pray immediately and then say amen and say, okay, Lord, how are we fixing this? Okay. Daniel continues in this process for three weeks, longing to know what God wants him to know from the particular vision that we'll study next week. He wants to know that, and he spends three weeks, 24 days praying and fasting. In fact, I notice here the text says that he is by the bank of the great river. That's the Tigris. That's not in Babylon where he was initially, where he would serve the kings. That puts him clear over about 340 miles away at another location. Commentators divide that issue. They don't know if he's there on business or if he's there on a bit of a sabbatical. It doesn't really matter to me why he's there. What we see is what he's doing while he's there. He's praying. Whether he's at work praying, whether he's on sabbatical praying, he is praying. And I noticed something else. He engages in this idea of fasting. And um, so let me just talk about that for a second, okay? Um, Don Whitney, in his wonderful little essay entitled, Nine Reasons to Fast Other Than Swimsuit Season, okay? Now, that's a great line, all right? Nine Reasons to Fast Other Than Swimsuit Season. Um, by the way, that line should bring some degree of conviction to all of us. Most of us are more concerned about our physical appearance, that's why we fast, than our spiritual well-being. Right? Shirt gets a little tight, we think, okay, I better not eat for a couple of days. Like, we, we just think in terms of our physical appearance way more than our spiritual condition. And Don Whitney makes this great point about it. He says, the Bible defines fasting as a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. It is Christian, for fasting by a non-Christian has no eternal value since the discipline's motives and purposes are to be God-centered. Fasting is voluntary in the sense that it is not to be coerced. 
Fasting is more than just the ultimate crash diet for the body. It is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Now, he gives you nine, and you can look that little essay up online if you want. Um, but here's what I want you to see. I'm just going to give you five of his nine, okay? Right from the Bible. Here we go. Reasons to add fasting to your prayer time is because it strengthens, you strengthen prayer. Now, bear in mind, we don't fast to impress God. But I know in my own life, something happens when I'm fasting and praying that all of a sudden, like, my stomach growls, and that's a reminder that I should be praying. It's easy for me to get distracted. It tends to strengthen our prayer. In fact, um, it's interesting. We just talked about this whole group of 42,000 people that headed back to Jerusalem. There was a period of time in a, in a second trip in Ezra chapter 8 where Ezra himself goes with a group of those people where he says, listen, we're going to fast and pray for our safety. Now, let me just ask a quick question. How many of you, before you've traveled uh, any significant distance at all, have prayed for your safety? Can I see your hands? Okay, great, great. We tend to pray for that. This is the singular biblical occurrence of praying for safety as in Ezra chapter 8. But I want you to see there was much potential of danger in that travel. They're traveling 600 miles. There's thieves. There's robbers along the way. There's whole nations that can cross over and uh, bring damage to you along the way. Kids can be lost. The whole thing is going on there, right? They fast. They pray for their safety. In fact, Whitney writes... Uh, when we, it strengthens our prayer in such a way that it sharpens the edge of your intercession and it gives passion to your supplication. Ezra says, listen, Ezra chapter 8, verse 23, we're going to fast and pray. Fasting doesn't change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. We become more dependent on the Lord when we pray and we're fasting. There's another time in the scripture where it speaks of fasting. It speaks of fasting when it comes to seeking God's guidance. In Acts chapter 14, 23, as the early church was looking to appoint elders, they set apart a time of fasting and praying. You want that dependence on the Lord when you're seeking to know what he wants you to do. It's remarkable. Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but let's say you got a big job change coming up. And you say, okay, I just need to know. I, know. I need to know what God wants me to do. Have you ever considered fasting and praying in preparation for that decision? One of the things you see in the Bible is that fasting and praying kind of runs in concurrence with seeking God's guidance for major decisions. Here's another place where we see it. We see it in expressing grief. In Judges chapter 20, there's a civil war going on between the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. 22,000 soldiers are killed one day, 18,000 soldiers are killed the next day. And you see in Judges 20, 26 that they actually just stopped and fasted and prayed. There is a, an incredible opportunity for us when we are grieving over something to say, I'm going to set back, I'm not going to eat for 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours, and I'm going to pray because I don't know what to do with the great amount of grief I am facing. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, we've already talked about this. Fasting and praying was for seeking deliverance or protection as the people traveled back. But here, I think, is perhaps my favorite. When you fast and pray, you naturally have to humble yourself before God. Because in the fasting, you feel your weakness. You say, man, I'm hungry. I need something. Later in the afternoon, you feel the weariness because you haven't fueled your body properly. You feel that weakness, and that weakness, Psalm 35, 13, says literally humbles you before the Lord. So this is just a great reminder. 
push and pause. Daniel prays. That's his pattern, okay? Here he is mourning, fasting, praying for three, three weeks. Reasons to add fasting to prayer. One final one. Here it is. Um, when the world is in conflict, in all great conflicts, God is actively working. We reaffirm that. In all great conflicts, prayer should be our first response. That's what Daniel did. In all great conflicts, Christ is the answer. In all great conflicts, Christ is the answer. Now, um, when we first started working through the book of Daniel, I did not, and then that even got readjusted with various things that happened in the course of the last couple months, I didn't plan on taking a look at this version of Christ just prior to heading into Palm Sunday and, and Good Friday and Easter and all that we experience. Nor did I plan on heading into this perspective on who Christ is prior to, uh, to communion. Because in communion, we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, because even as we sung, he is a friend for sinners. But for just a moment, I want you to see how Daniel saw the person of Christ. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, this passage we read to start. Now, some have said this is just the version of an angel. I disagree with that because I'm going to show you in the book of Revelation similarities between this person that he sees and how John looks at the person of Christ. So, just for a moment, we think of Jesus as tender and compassionate and loving, and that he is. But this is also the way the Bible describes his appearance. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Hold on to that. Picture him. Dressed in white linen, a belt of gold. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel singles out this person that he sees. Now, look at how Revelation chapter 1 captures that same idea. There, John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, here's the image of Jesus, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash or belt, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, his voice was the roar of many waters. Just for a moment, think about this. That is not the image that we think of when we see Jesus. But that is the way that the Bible describes Jesus. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Phil. I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know Daniel comes way before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and so what is Jesus doing back there if he hasn't been born until we get into the Gospels? Good question. If you understand that Jesus is God, like John 1, 1 starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word, understood to be Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? That's how Jesus becomes what we call incarnate. He becomes and puts on human humanity when he is born as a baby. But John 1 tells you that he preexisted before he was born as a baby. And Revelation reminds us that he is still existing clear into the future. He is eternal from beginning to end. We call this in the book of Daniel the pre-incarnate um, Christ or uh, Christophany, that is, Christ appearing prior to be born into, his, into humanity. In fact, 
you can kind of see a pre-incarnate Christ and a post-incarnate Christ in the book of Revelation. In between was the Gospels. You say, well, does the Gospels ever reflect them that way? Yeah, watch this. There is one place in the Gospel where you see the curtain pulled back a little bit on who Jesus really is. Matthew chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It's almost like for just one moment, the curtain opens up. Okay. Now, here's what I want you to think. I know that we love images of Jesus where he's holding a child on his knee, and he does that in the gospel, where he is compassionate, where he kneels next to the woman caught in adultery and releases her in John chapter 8, where he, where he talks to the Samaritan woman, where he dialogues with Nicodemus, where he feels reachable. I just don't want you to lose sight of the fact that that is who Jesus is, but this is also who Jesus is. Eyes of flaming fire. As I was thinking about that this morning, we don't even know how to respond to that because, frankly, we've seen enough uh, Marvel movies that we don't even take that as real, right? We see people jump and hold up rockets and, and, and their eyes flame with fire. We see all of that, and we don't even see this as real. This is real, okay? This is who Jesus is. He, his eyes flame with fire. You say, what does that mean? Well, let's just think about it for a second. Jesus can look right through you and see your thoughts, your intentions, and your motives. Hebrews confirms that. For no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. If we really thought of Christ in that way, we would, we, we would worship him far more coming to Good Friday. We would not see him as a victim, but the one who willingly laid down his life for us because this is who he is. His face shone bright as the sun and his clothes became white as light. Let me give you three things you need to think about when we see Christ, okay? Daniel sees him in, in, in that presentation. Um, by faith, we understand that there is more to Christ than we can comprehend. By faith, we understand that there is more to Christ than we can comprehend. We're comforted by the fact that he is loving and compassionate. He, he, he weeps when he comes to the grave of Lazarus. We see all of that humanity. I just don't want you to lose sight of the fact that there is way more to him than simply how you think about him. And by the way, if, uh, if you've ever said, well, that's not how I want to think about Jesus because that's not very comforting. I'm going to think about him this way. You can think about him any way you want, but you better realize that there's more to him than you can comprehend. Don't simply be comforted. Also stand in awe of who he is. By faith, we understand that there is more to Christ than we can comprehend. Let me give you a, another real quick little glimpse at one of those pre-incarnate um, presentations of Christ clear back in the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua's about to go to Jericho. He's about to come in, and, and uh, he's, he, he's about to come in and take down the city of Jericho when the Israelites are coming into the promised land. And obviously, he's nervous. He's the leader. He's the general. He, he's just trying to kind of figure it out. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. That sounds just like Daniel, doesn't it? 
And behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? This is a great question, by the way. Um, if you ever play in pickup basketball and you see a really big guy, you, you want to be careful to say, are you on my team or are you on their team? Okay? That's the image here. Okay? And he said, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, this is really important. He says, I'm not on your team or their team. I am the one who is leading this. Okay? And I want you to see what Joshua does. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said, that's a great phrase and sometimes used to communicate who Jesus is in the Old Testament. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Angels don't say that, okay? God says that, and Joshua did so. And the first thing I understand is that my understanding of Jesus can tend to be too much in the Gospels and not enough in the rest of the Bible where Jesus is the one who is commanding this kind of respect and awe. And that brings us to the second idea. In humility, we see ourselves in light of who he is. He is holy, we are not, okay? In humility, we see ourselves in light of who he is. He is holy, we are not. There's something about Jesus when we experience him and and by faith, we have to see him in that fuller setting because that's not how we necessarily think about him. That is, that he is holy and set apart. We're not. Therefore, we should feel a greater degree of conviction about the sin that we do commit because he is holy. In fact, First Peter says this, be holy for I am holy. Now, let me go back to Daniel, okay? John and Revelation and um, and Joshua, and just take a quick look at how they respond when they see Christ in this way, okay? Okay, let's just, let's just look at this real quickly. This is how they respond. Daniel said, so I was left alone and saw this great vision. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. This is Christ speaking. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, okay? Now, when you first read that, it sounds like, was he that tired? I think he passed out. Okay. I, I think that's his way of saying, I just went unconscious. When was the last time you were impacted by your understanding of the holiness of Christ in such a way that it, you just would have passed out? Okay. By the way, our mind is just so full of, of how things have been done against us or how we have this sense of entitlement that we deserve certain things. We just don't think of Jesus this way. Now, notice Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord want from his servant? You see that same kind of expression, falling to your face. And, and check out John in the book of Revelation. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John passed out. Like, you're, you, you want to say, hey, is there a doctor in the house? These guys see Jesus, and they keep passing out. Okay? That's what you see when you see Christ in all of his glory and all of his splendor. I think it's great that we can experience Good Friday and remember what it was like for Christ to surrender himself and die in our place. It's beautiful. It's comforting. It reminds us that even though we say, nobody loves me, we can't say that because we look at how Christ loved us. I think it's even better when we remember who this person is 
prior to coming as a baby, living a sinless life and dying on the cross and raising from the dead. This second person of the Trinity, this person, Jesus Christ, was full of glory in such a way that if you saw him in his unshielded glory, you would pass out. That's the testimony of Scripture. And there's one final thing when we see Christ. With gratefulness, we are drawn to worship him with a thankful spirit. I think it makes Good Friday better. I wouldn't have planned to be preaching about his eyes of fire that he can see right through you, his arms and legs of burnished brass that he is strong beyond words, his, his uh, voice that sounds like thunder that means that, listen, you can't win an argument with Christ. He is perfect. He is thoroughly holy. But I will tell you this, that when I see that and then I see what he did for us at Easter time, there should not be any place for grumbling or complaining. How could there be? There should only be an expression of gratitude and gratefulness as we're drawn to worship him with a thankful spirit. Here's the thing you want to know as we head up into the uh, Passion Week next Sunday starting that off. Of all the great conflicts you need to know, Christ is always the answer. Christ is the answer in the midst of the great conflicts. Whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty you're facing today, I just want to tell you, Christ is the answer. I'm not the answer. Somebody else isn't the answer. Change of circumstances is not the answer. Christ is the answer. Turn to him. Don't try to do this on your own. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. We're grateful and thankful that you introduce us to Jesus in a way that we're sometimes unfamiliar with. We love his compassion. We love his kindness. But we also recognize that he is the one who can look right through us. He is the one who sees the thoughts and intentions and motives of our heart. He is the one who in his holiness asks us to, um, through his power and through his strength, to change those motives and thoughts and intentions to be conformed to him, not to the world around us. Forgive us, Lord, where we struggle. Forgive us, Lord, where, we're, uh, where we fall back into old ways of thinking. Help us trust in the one who was perfectly holy and yet came to die in our place, perfectly loving. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.